in-depth journalism is more important than ever in a complicated, chaotic time. That's why we listen to NPR's Throughline. This is a podcast that appeals to us on so many levels. As history buffs, we love their historical contextualization of important ongoing issues. As storytellers, we love the engaging way they approach and often humanize complicated tales. As news consumers who want to stay informed, we love the way they give the story behind the big stories of the day. We try to take a similar approach on the murder sheet, and we feel confident that our listeners would enjoy giving NPR's Throughline a try. We've been going through their entire backlog recently, listening to them as we drive to source meetings. One favorite of mine was their episode about Andrew Johnson's impeachment. Throughline's coverage didn't disappoint, delving in depth into one of history's worst U.S. presidents. They also did an episode which is rather pertinent to our work, and that was the one they did about the proliferation of conspiracy theories and how they've always been part of America's DNA. That's something I think about quite a lot, given the creep of misinformation and manipulation in online true crime spaces. NPR's Throughline is a source we trust. They're all about nuance and depth and unpacking the messiness behind outwardly simple stories. Go back in time. Learn something new. Emerge more knowledgeable about today's headlines. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Content warning, this episode contains discussion of murder, including the murder of a child. One of the first true crime stories that really made an impact on me was the 1982 Chicago Tylenol murders. Seven people in that city died from taking Tylenol that had been laced with cyanide. It seemed terrifying that innocent people could pass away so horribly by doing something as normal as taking a pain reliever. And somehow, the very worst part of it was that the person who did it never got prosecuted for those deaths. But maybe that will change. Award-winning Chicago Tribune investigative reporters Christy Gutowski and Stacy St. Clair learned that this case is far from cold, that law enforcement is still working on solving it. They reported on the case and the current investigation in a series of terrific articles in the Tribune and also in their podcast, Unsealed. We recently got a chance to talk to them about the case. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. 
Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're The Murder Sheet, and this is The Tylenol Murders, a conversation with Unsealed's Christy Gutowski and Stacy St. Clair. us a little bit about your backgrounds and how you got involved in this case. Sure. Um, my name is Christy Gutowski. I'm a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. I started in 2010 and I'm a, a lifelong Chicagoan, South, uh, born and raised in South Suburbs. And uh, Stacy and I actually met in the 90s. We were both reporters for the third largest newspaper in Illinois called the Daily Herald. It's, it's mostly based in the suburbs. Uh, and obviously the Tylenol murders were based largely in the suburbs. So we began writing about some of the twists and turns in this case early in our careers. And I actually was a courthouse reporter in DuPage County for a decade and got to know a lot of the detectives who had been part of Tylenol Task Force One. They were at the twilight of their career, uh, working the second second job as investigators for the state's attorney's office. And um, it just always stuck with me how this case, they never let it go. And it, it really haunted some of them that uh, they were never able to solve it. My name is Stacey St. Clair, and I am a reporter with the Chicago Tribune. And, you know, I spent my entire professional career working beside Christy at uh, two newspapers now. And, um, like she said, this is a case that if you are a reporter in the Chicago area, it has crossed your desk at one point or another because there have been so many starts and stops to to the case and twists and turns. So um, I'm no different. I, I It's crossed my desk a couple of times. And uh, with the 40th anniversary, our editors um, asked us to take a look at it. We thought we were going to be writing about a cold case. And it turned out it was a lot, a lot hotter than we thought. Yeah, we just gotten off the Kyle Rittenhouse trial in Kenosha late uh, last year, and we were both just exhausted and wanted something different. And when uh, an editor suggested, you know, the 40 year anniversary is coming up, we talked about it and thought, well, this could be fun uh, and interesting. And um, it seemed like the timing. It, it just seems like time's running out. 40 years is such a long time, but 
right away we found out that you know people uh, had died or witnesses had moved away memories fade and we just thought this was a pivotal time the the main suspect james lewis is 76 so it just seemed like now or never i'd love to go back to the very beginning of course before you can solve a crime you have to be aware that a crime has actually happened can you tell us about the original deaths in this case back in uh, 82 and the process by which people figured out that it was the result of a crime? Sure. So the, the deaths began in the morning of September 29th, 1982, when uh, 12-year-old Mary Kellerman woke up and wasn't feeling well. Her father told her she could stay home from school. And while he was downstairs calling the school bus to say she wouldn't be on that day, uh, she went into the bathroom and took a single extra strength Tylenol. Um, she collapsed and was pronounced dead before her classmates had really dug into their classes that day. And several hours later in a town about eight miles away, um, Adam Janis was uh, home from uh, his day off. He was his day off from work, and he too was uh, feeling good enough to run some errands, but not great. So he took a couple Tylenol, and um, he was found unresponsive by his wife, who um, summoned help, and he was taken to the to the hospital in, in Arlington Heights, where really the medical mystery surrounding this case began, and so. What happened was Adam's family, um, they're a family of Polish immigrants in the Chicago area. We have a very large Polish immigrant population um, in Chicago. Family rushed to the hospital. The doctors primarily spoke with um, his brother-in-law and his brother, uh, Stanley, and his sister-in-law, Terry, because they spoke English, explained what happened. The entire family then went back to Adam Janice's house to be with his you know, wife and children and, and you know, start playing a funeral. And that's when Stanley, Adam's brother, and his sister-in-law, Terry, took Tylenol uh, at the house. You can, you can imagine, right? They're, they're grieving, they're, you know, they have the headaches that come with, with grief, and they go into the bathroom, they take Tylenol, and then they collapse. And it's, those firefighters who respond to Terry and Stanley's emergency call, who had also responded to Adams, and they they very quickly look at each other and say, this isn't a heart attack, right? That's what they dismissed Adam Janice's death as a heart attack. Guys, this isn't a heart attack. This is something, this is something else. There was also a public health nurse at the hospital named Helen Jensen, who um really is key to helping solve this medical mystery. Her, and then there was a doctor, um, Dr. Thomas Kim, uh, who put it together along with some Cook County medical examiner officials as well um, in that 24 hour period um, and really stemmed, uh, stopped more deaths from occurring. So we're, we had four deaths at this point. Well, one, uh, one of the victims was put on life support, so she didn't die within that first 24-hour period. But over in DuPage County, a neighboring county uh, from Cook County, we had two uh, single mothers die that same in that same 24-hour period. Tragically, one of the mothers had just delivered her fourth child days earlier, 
and you know just had the aches and pains from childbirth and took some Tylenol and each one of the victims had the same physical symptoms their eyes were fixed and dilated their breathing shallow as if being suffocated by some invisible force all of them were young uh, you know Mary Kellerman was 12 the oldest victim was 35 and in relatively good health um, Another victim was Mary McFarlane uh, in Elmhurst. She died at, uh, she was stricken at work. She was working at a, uh, like a phone center in the suburbs in Lombard. And she, uh, just from dealing with the public and customers, uh, she had taken a couple of Tylenol and also had those same symptoms. And lastly, there was one victim from Chicago and she wasn't found, this was on a Wednesday, she wasn't found until that Friday, and that was Paula Prince. She was a 35-year-old flight attendant, but they determined from the uh, the receipt from the Tylenol she had bought after she'd gotten back from a flight that she had bought it Wednesday and uh, taken it in uh, literally the cyanide is such a powerful poison that her body, she just, she was in the bathroom. She had a cotton ball taking off her uh, makeup from a long day's uh, work. And she literally just fell backwards and half her body was in the bathroom, half was in the hallway uh, and died. And she was found on Friday. So what really tied it all together were the Janices because Helen Jensen, who Christy mentioned, the public health nurse, she interviewed Adam Janice's wife to see what would happen that day, right? How did three young, healthy people all from the same family end up dead? And in her interview, she determined that they all had Tylenol. Adam's wife mentioned all of them taking the Tylenol. So Helen had this theory that it had to be the Tylenol that, that tied them together. At the same time as she was interviewing Adam Janice's widow, a firefighter named Chuck Kramer was listening to the conversation. He's in quarantine because they didn't know what was going on, right? They thought it could be like an environmental toxin. They thought it could be some kind of airborne illness. So he's in, in uh, quarantine with all these other people. They get released because they figure out it's, it's probably not, you know, some kind of airborne illness. And he's on his way back to the station and he calls in that, his crew is going to be out of commission for decontamination. And he gets a phone call from a fi an off-duty firefighter saying, what is going on? And he tells them, because we had a day you wouldn't believe. You know, three young, healthy people dropped dead, nothing tying their desk together except they all took Tylenol. And that guy says, Tylenol? My mother-in-law works with a woman whose 12-year-old daughter died after taking Tylenol. And then, you know, the, the firefighters alert the proper authorities and then it goes from there. And that helps them identify not only the Janices and Mary Kellerman as victims, but Mary Reiner, Mary Sue McFarland, and Paula Prince all get, get identified as cyanide victims from these puzzle pieces that, that the Arlington Heights uh, folks and Dr. Kim put together. Um, can you speak to the reaction from not only law enforcement, but the public around Chicago um, as it becomes clear that these mysterious deaths are not only linked, but are related to, you know, cyanide and there's a rash of poisonings happening right now. I, I mean, I imagine the, the horror, I guess, if you could speak to that. It was a much more innocent time back in 1982. This was uh, years later, they describe it as 
really one of the, if not the first, one of the first acts of domestic terrorism. This was a time when you could go into a grocery store and open a carton of milk or a jar of peanut butter, and there'd be no protection or Tylenol. Uh, there'd be no safety um, you know, protection. Uh, all there was was basically uh, a cotton ball. Um, so you can imagine it was absolute uh, hysteria and you know we interviewed people uh police officers um and um the victims families and and others who described cops going but this is a pre-internet world going down block by block with a bullhorn uh, urging people to uh not to take their tylenol to throw out their tylenol to turn in their tylenol to local police departments uh so it was it was hysteria and this was right before halloween so a lot of us, I was 13 at the time, I'm old enough to remember that Halloween was uh, something was, you know, different about it. So it became a national, a national news story. And I understand also that with, there are certain challenges in an investigation when you have victims in different uh, jurisdictions. So how did they come together to figure out how to conduct this investigation? Sure. and and. That is a really good way to describe it. Each victim, with the exception of the Janices, lived in different towns. So there's a police department in every in each of those towns who's investigating, and they happen in two different counties. So there are prosecutors in these two different counties who will make the ultimate decisions whether to charge. So they had different chains of command. So and things were kind of all over the place. So what they did was they tapped the Illinois Attorney General, who actually had no jurisdiction. Attorneys generals in Illinois do not investigate crimes uh, or do not investigate um, violent crimes. They tapped our Illinois Attorney General at the time, whose name was Ty Thainer. He was a uh, really outstanding federal prosecutor and, who had experience working with multi-agency task force. So they thought like he would be the best to um, to sort of spearhead the thing. And then President Reagan was concerned. It was causing a nationwide panic. So he ordered the FBI into the case. The only problem was the FBI had no jurisdiction because at the time, tampering with a, a consumer product like that was not a federal offense. Now it is now, and that's part of Tylenol's legacy. But at the time, there, there was no jurisdiction uh, for the FBI. So they found um, a misdemeanor law on that books involving truth in labeling. And so their theory, which they all admit, all the former FBI agents admit it was preposterous. That they, you know, they're in on it too. They know it's not an authentic or a legitimate reason. But their reason for getting in was that they had to investigate whether Johnson & Johnson knew cyanide was in those pills and then didn't put it on the label. Um, so with that sort of, you know, hook and a crook as they described it uh, in our story, the FBI entered the Tylenol task force. And um, obviously when Paula Prince was found on October 1st, CPD joined and, and that's when things got a little uh, tense. Mysteries are at the heart of everything we do here on The Murder Sheet. But sometimes it's more fun to dive into a fictional caper. That's why we love the free-to-download hidden object game, June's Journey. This game is our daily escape from waiting around in line, getting stuck on hold, and just general doldrums. 
it is great to be able to just knock out a few levels here and there. You'll get to discover your inner sleuth and sharpen your observational skills by finding clues hidden in each level. Plus, it's like dropping straight into your own cozy mystery novel. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective with a nose for trouble. You get to tackle all kinds of bizarre crimes across a series of elegant and memorable locales. Also, you have a side hustle decorating your own island estate. I love that. I bought a swan pond. She really did. Download this game for a built-in work break. It's a great mental health boost that makes you feel accomplished before you get back to tackling whatever task you have at hand. And remember, when you support our advertisers, you're supporting our show. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, yeah, I'm wondering if you can speak to some of that tension when you have a, a, a task force with, you know, the feds and local police and city police coming together. You know, you get an abundance of resources, but you also get perhaps different opinions and different methods. So if you could speak to that. We talk about it in our uh, Chicago Tribune newspaper uh, series, as well as the podcast, that turf wars, um, everyone wanted their name on the marquee. Everyone wanted to be the one to solve it. Uh, Everyone wanted that lead that ended up, um, you know, figuring out this mystery of of, uh, what kind of a madman could do something like this. So... um, one thing they did that was kind of ingenious at the time was the task force was uh, organized in teams. So one member of the FBI, one member of the state police, and then a suburban police officer were teamed together um, daily. And they, you know, go to the task force meeting in, in the morning and they'd uh, get updates and they'd get leads and then they'd go out together. So that seemed to from what from our reporting, we found it worked well. But then once Chicago Police Department got involved, there was a lot more friction, especially when uh, Chicago police uh, developed their own suspect uh, in in early um, October. Uh, they wanted to Paula Prince was their murder. That was their victim. They wanted to be the ones to investigate it. They didn't like having to drive out to Desplaines, which was a good, you know, 45 minutes without traffic, uh, double that with Chicago traffic uh, every day. And um, so uh, 
There was also an interesting time dynamic at that time between the FBI and Chicago police because there was an infamous case known as the Marquette 10 at the time where 10 Chicago police officers were indicted for basically shaking down drug dealers. And uh, it was an FBI federal investigation. So, um, you know, they didn't go into Tylenol to the task force and to the investigation with the best relationship to begin with. One thing I found interesting uh, reading the articles is that nowadays we hear a lot about FBI profiles and things of that nature. And apparently this is one of the first cases where profiles really played a part. And uh, can you discuss that? Yeah, so it was one of the earliest uses of it. And, um, you know, I will say that uh, investigators both in 1982 and today there are some who who find it you know a little a little bit uh too broad you know almost like a horoscope where you could make anything kind of fit but you know we talked to fbi agents who found it immensely helpful and they helped sort of narrow down in the fbi's mind the person they were looking for and that it would be somebody who um had a traumatic childhood had a had a history of abusing animals, um, had allegations of violence um, in his past. They, they assumed it was a male, even though um, women are more likely to kill with poison, women are mo more likely to kill someone they know, whereas a man is more likely to um, commit mass murder or kill perfect strangers. So, um, and then, one of our favorite bits of the of the profile was that the person would soon grow bored of um, not getting enough attention, get bored with sort of the anonymity of the crime and would would sort of insert themselves into um, the case a sort of, you know, I one FBI descri agent described it to us as enough about me talking about me. You talk about me for a while. And um, so when someone later on in the case did insert themselves and offer to help solve the crime, um, it totally, you know, perked the FBI's antennas up. Important thing to remember as well about the profile was that it wasn't about a specific uh, target or suspect at the time because uh, they really didn't have, uh, when this profile was written, uh, a main uh, person, uh, a suspect. It was just who would, uh, what a, a general uh, portrait of, of who this killer could be. And it had the sort of stuff that, you know, we're used to hearing about nowadays from all the, uh, you know, shows that are out there, like cruel to animals, uh, you know, history of violence, a loner, that sort of stuff. But one thing that was pretty specific was that, as Stacy mentioned, this, this person uh, is enjoying all of this, you know, uh, fervor that has grown from what they've done. And once the headlines die down and things get quiet, they're going to reach out. And the profiler said that um, they're going to um, identify with someone in law enforcement. And they actually described the person as uh, someone who would wear a red tie and a blue suit and had gray hair. And that turned out to be pretty prophetic. 
world. Um, you mentioned the kind of the element of mass murder in this, and and then the possibility, of course, in a in a consumer tampering case that someone is a target, and that the others are collateral to cover up who the target is. And of course, there's other scenarios that they were looking at, like post-manufacturing tampering versus factory contamination. Um, can you speak to some of those different possibilities and how they were either eliminated or considered over the course of the investigation? Sure. So they did look at each victim individually to see if they had anyone in their orbit who would target them. Obviously, you look at family, co-workers, close friends, and, and that was done. And they didn't find anyone who was specifically could be targeted uh, in large part because the victims either bought the bottles themselves or, you know, in Mary Kellerman's case, she's 12 years old, but her mother bought the bottle, right? So you have to start playing the odds. Like if you want to target one of the victims, well, what are the odds that you're going to get them in the store? get them to pick the the poisoned bottle off the shelf, you know, and then take it all within the same window. Like the odds uh, are very low, right? That they that would happen. Um, same with the production, because some of the pills were made in Texas and some of them came off a production line in Pennsylvania. So, and they never crossed I mean, some of the bottles did because some of like Mary Kellerman and Adam Janice came from the same lot, right? But not all the poison bottles that were found, including three that were found after the deaths, they were either pulled from the shelves or turned in. Um, none of those bottles were all in the same place at the same time. So they said, you know, okay, so what are the odds that you, if you did it, at the plant as they're coming off, what are the odds, even in both two separate places, what are the odds that they all end up in Chicago and are purchased in the same 24 hour period? So they just sort of mathematically eliminated a lot of the possibilities that way and said it had to have taken place on the store shelves. Also, they looked at disgruntled former employees of the grocery store chains where the um, tainted bottles had been purchased or were recovered uh, in the recall. They um, did deep background checks on each one of the victims and their families. And actually uh, two of the spouses, one was a former spouse, uh, did um, uh, lie detector tests. And so there were, they, they looked um, at whether one of these people could have been targeted on you, like you asked, and they ruled that out. Another thing that struck me about the investigation was uh, the use of media. They actually reached out to the uh, former Chicago Tribune columnist, uh, Bob Green. Can you talk about that and uh, sure. the active effect of that? Um, so yeah, I'll talk about one of the not so great moments in Tribune history on your podcast. Um, yeah, so at one point, um, you know, the profile suggested that the killer was enjoying the attention. So they had, um, with the profilers suggested, they go to Bob Green, who was a very popular Chicago Tribune columnist. And they asked him with Mary Kellerman's parents' consent to write a column that provided 
the address of Mary Kellerman's home and the location of her grave. And the column essentially was, if you're the killer, you know, you should drive by Mary Kellerman's parents' house and see the devastation you've caused them or visit her grave and see the flowers that have been left for her. Sort of, you know, egging him on to to show up at either of these places. And then they had surveillance at both of these places, hoping the killer would show up. Um, it did not net any arrests or any good leads, but what it did do was, um, because the FBI planted it, it really upset their suburban detective who the FBI was partnered with on Mary Kellerman's death because he was completely blindsided. And then it goes back to the idea of tension among the various agencies that we talked about earlier. And that's just one example of the out-of-the-box thinking that Task Force One did at that time. You know, this is before DNA and the CSI world that we live in. You know, nowadays you've got your, you know, you can't go to the grocery store without being <laughs> captured and photographed, a, you know, a dozen times. But back then, you know, they didn't have that. So there was a lot of different things that Stacey and I uh, dug up that they did back then that really was out-of-the-box thinking. Like uh, we interviewed... Um, Grace Deed, a former retired FBI agent who talked about how they went to their um, counterparts in um, counterintelligence uh, and, you know, reached out to the Soviets to find out if the Soviets had their satellites focused in on any of these stores where the uh, eight tainted bottles had um, had come from to see if, you know, if there, was there a chance that they actually caught the killer in the, in the act. And unfortunately, uh, the satellites weren't trained on any of those areas at the time, but they they did um, you know they set up time lapse cameras at uh, the grave sites of the seven victims and um, things like that um, that you know seemed to us to be pretty forward um, thinking for for the era. And they even went to libraries, right, and looked up who had checked out books on cyanide. And veterinarians uh, to see uh, if anyone had practiced on animals first. And they looked at, um, you know, suspicious deaths in the two county area, Cook and DuPage, uh, for two years uh, leading up to it to see if maybe there were more than seven victims. So, yeah, they did a lot of um, needle in the haystack kind of uh, investigative work. Um, I wanted to jump into some of the suspects that came on, um, you know, throughout this, you know, one Roger Arnold, and I was wondering if you could speak to him and, you know, tell us why were police interested in him? Roger Arnold was uh, a Chicago man, and in 1982, he was a bit down on his luck and despondent. He was going through a divorce. He actually had all of these different similarities or um, coincidence to the to the crime uh, for example he was a dock hand at one of the grocery chains where uh, two of the eight tainted bottles came from he um, had lived in the area he drank he was uh, drinking a lot at the time because he was going through problems he drank in the area where near walking distance from where paula prince uh the walgreens where she bought her bottle and had lived um you know and worked 
with he at one point he worked with the father of one of the victims, Mary Reiner. So he had all these different like coincidences. So in early October, a uh, owner of a bar on Lincoln Avenue in Chicago calls the Chicago Police Department and drops the dime on Roger Arnold. Says, "Listen, I've got the semi-regular who comes in here, and he was talking about having cyanide in his house, bragging. He's kind of like an amateur home." Uh, chemist, and he was bragging about having cyanide, and um, he thought that was suspicious, so he called the police. So the police thought it was suspicious as well, and they picked up Arnold. They interviewed him. Uh, Arnold agreed, uh, told them all about his life. He'd been adopted. He was a seventh grade dropout. Didn't have uh, a violent criminal history or anything like that, but he admitted to having cyanide in his home at one point. Uh, said he bought it from a mail order, Wisconsin, uh, you know, Wisconsin uh, company and that he had gotten rid of it because his uh, ex-wife didn't like having it in the house and he really didn't uh, didn't like uh, didn't want any trouble. So he agreed to let them search his home and they without having to have a search warrant. And they went and they found all sorts of uh, bizarre things like um, James Bond's. What was the name of the book, Stacey? James Bond. Uh, the poor man's James Bond. The poor man's James Bond and uh, beakers and vials and and. Uh, how-to manuals and how to make different, um, you know, poisons and things like that. So they thought he was pretty good for it, but uh, they could never really get any conclusive evidence linking him to the case. And their investigation of Roger Arnold uh, ended up getting thwarted because, again, this has to do with some of the politics involved in this huge case. While they were inventorying their um, everything they had the, found in the search, uh, CPD Brass came in and started um, trying to interview uh, Arnold. And he, this rapport that these two detectives we interviewed had gotten ruined and Arnold uh, lawyered up and he stopped talking. So he was released like 72 hours later on basically just misdemeanor weapons violations because they found uh, some unregistered weapons in his home. And uh, so he was released and they were never, he was never charged with the Tylenol case, but his name got leaked to the media uh, pretty quickly. And he became known, it uh, became a national story. Tylenol suspect, Roger Arnold. And he claimed that it ruined his life. He was already, you know, going through problems. And he said that it, he was ostracized in his, in his community and at work and, you know, teenagers drove past his home and threw things at his home. And he said that he became so enraged um, and um, he wanted to get it back at the, the bar owner who he believed dropped the dime and ruined his life and told police that he could be the Tylenol killer. So a year later, he actually shot an innocent man that he thought was a man who resembled the bar owner, but it wasn't. It ended up being um, John Stanishaw, a father of three little girls, and we interviewed his youngest child, Lori, and talked about the impact of the crime. Um, really, John Stanishaw is, is the eighth victim in this case. Oh. And he you know, was convicted of murder and, and went to prison uh, and got out um, and died in it was about 2008. Uh, and of course, the other suspect is uh, James Lewis. Can you talk about him and how he came to uh, police attention? James Lewis, as James Lewis has a history of doing, inserted himself into this case. He sent a extortion letter to Johnson & Johnson demanding a million dollars to stop the killing and left a, a bank account um, of a Chicago, a closed bank account of a Chicago travel agency 
<clears throat> so when the FBI became uh, the custodians of this letter, they went to the travel agency owner and they asked him, you know, they ruled him out as a suspect and then said, hey, who, who could do, who knows you that could pull off such a, you know, vile stunt? And he said, well, a man named Robert Richardson. And that was an alias used by James Lewis. They eventually connect it. Um, they, they go on, you talk about the use of media. They go on national television. The, the night they identify Robert Richardson, they put his photo up on the, on the screen. And in Kansas City, Missouri, there was a detective watching uh, CBS News with Dan Rather. And he saw the picture and said, that's Jim Lewis. So he called the FBI. And before Dan Rather was off the air that night, the FBI knew the real name of the extortion letter writer, and that was James Lewis. And the more the FBI learned about James Lewis's past, he was um, wanted on a credit card scam in Kansas City and had been um, arrested, though charges were later dropped because of a Miranda, a Miranda violation. Um, he had been arrested for murder in Kansas City. And once they learned those details of his past, he went from, um, sort of opportunist writing an extortion letter to prime suspect in the murders. Um, James Lewis has always denied uh, any responsibility for the Tylenol uh, murders. He had admitted in court, uh, his lawyers did on his behalf that he wrote the extortion letter, attempted extortion letter, um, but he has always denied that he was the one responsible for putting cyanide in the capsule, so. It's very important to note that. In the murder that Stacy mentioned, it was in 1978 in Kansas City, uh, and it was incredibly brutal. It was a dismemberment of an elderly man. James Lewis had been uh, his tax man. He had done the, the man's taxes, and the man actually met James Lewis because he was a walker. He would walk in his neighborhood and uh past Lewis's home uh, where he did his tax services. And at the time, Lewis had a, a little girl um, and, you know, he waved to the little girl. We knew someone who told us the story about this and, and they just got to talking and he began doing his taxes. And this man, this elderly man um, had um, some means. He had some money saved up and Lewis, um, you know, was charged. There was a $5,000 check that they determined um, to Lewis from the victim that had been forged. Uh, there was also a um, Lewis's print was found on a pulley that was used to hoist this man's body into his attic where he was found dismembered. Uh, but because of Miranda violations, uh, James Lewis's the, the murder charge was dropped on the eve of the trial. Uh, and we actually interviewed the prosecutor in the case who's, you know, talked about how the case still haunts him. You mentioned uh, Lewis's daughter. Can you tell us what uh, happened to her? Yeah, she um, was born with Down syndrome. Her name was Tony Ann. And as many children who have Down syndrome, um, she had a heart defect. And she had a surgery when she was about three months old and another one when she was five years old. And she did not survive um, the surgery. She died of um, surgical post-surgery complications. Um, including the, the rupture of the, the sutures used to repair uh, her heart. And those sutures were uh, manufactured by Proline Ethicon, 
and marketed under the brand name Proline, which was trademarked by Johnson and Johnson. And of course, they're the manufacturer of a Tylenol. Yes. Another important thing to know about James Lewis is when he, uh, as Stacy mentioned, he was wanted for the credit card fraud. He left Kansas City and lived in Chicago for under a year under the alias. And then um, three weeks before the Tylenol poisons moved to New York. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. At The Murder Sheet, we're all about true crime podcasts, but we also adore audiobooks that immerse us in mysteries of both the fictional and non-fictional varieties. So you can imagine that we love Audible. With an Audible subscription, you can enter in an incredible library of audiobooks. We are talking about thousands of titles. Audible also has thousands of podcasts from all sorts of genres, including yours truly's, not to mention all sorts of other audio experiences. Audible members can download or stream included titles at any time, and the Audible app lets you listen on the go. I love listening to audiobooks when I'm doing chores around the house. One novel I'm looking forward to listening to is A Wicked Snow by Greg Olson. It's all about a young crime scene investigator haunted by her mother's mysterious murder. We talked to Greg on the show a while back, and I cannot wait to check that out. I love spine-tingling thrillers and mysteries, and I can tell that this one is going to be spooky in the best possible way. Audible brings such atmosphere to the listening experience. Audio is such a wonderful way to lose yourself in a story. Now is a wonderful time to become an Audible member. Murder Sheet listeners are getting a special deal. Audible members can keep one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. New members can try Audible now free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash msheet or text msheet to 500-500. That's audible.com slash msheet or text msheet to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. And he's been uh, a focus for quite a while. Can you tell us about the sting operation uh, mounted against him a while back? Um, sure. So James Lewis did go to prison for the attempted extortion. He was never charged uh, with the killings. And he got out in about the mid-90s. And then after that, the case was you know, somewhat dormant. Um, they would do occasionally, you know, send things to the lab for testing, but there was nobody working full-time on the case. And in 2016, a Chicago journalist um, went to the FBI and said he had been investigating the case for years and he, he believed he had solved it. And 
the um, special agent in charge of the Chicago office, Robert Grant, his interest was piqued. So he called um, in one of the FBI agents from the first task force, uh, a man named Roy Lane Jr. And he, he asked Roy to come in and listen to this journalist explain who, what his theory was. And, and Roy, Roy did. This was sort of the case that, he, you know, he's a legendary FBI agent in Chicago. And this was the case that he never got to solve, that he never got to close. So he, he welcomed the opportunity to come back and listen. And the journalist presented a suspect who wasn't James Lewis and wasn't Roger Arnold. Um, but that um, when it was over, the journalist left and, and Robert Grant turned to, to Roy Lane and said, yeah, what do you think? And Roy said, it's interesting, but, but we think we know who did it. And, you know, the main suspect is James Lewis. And so that got them thinking that maybe this was, you know, a cold case they should reopen. And they did, and they came, they did so under a sting operation, and this might sound familiar, in which a journalist talks to Roy Lane Jr. and says, I've solved the case. So Roy Lane calls James Lewis and says, hey, this journalist can help you, you know, can help solve the case and maybe clear your name. Are you interested in helping us? And James Lewis, who has a history of inserting himself in this case, welcomed the opportunity. And he started working unknowingly with Roy Lane Jr. and an undercover agent who went by the name Sherry Nichols. One interesting thing to know about Roy Lane and James Lewis's history and why Lane would call Lewis and Lewis would know who he is, is remember the profiler said that at some point when things start getting quiet, uh, the, you know, killer is going to reach out to law enforcement. He's going to identify someone with, uh, you know, who wears a blue suit and a, and a red tie and is like that quintessential all-American, you know, uh, gray-haired <laughs> law enforcement. So that, uh, but for the gray hair, was Roy Lane in 1983. And uh, Lane uh, had sat through the trial at the prosecutor's table, the attempted extortion trial. Uh, so he was a daily presence during that and Lewis recognized him. And sure enough, after Lewis was convicted of attempted extortion, but before he was sentenced, he reached, Lewis reached out to Roy Lane and said, I'm not the killer, but I bet I can help you figure out who it is. And thus began a half a dozen and meetings, which are somewhat infinite, infamous in the story, uh, between Roy Lane, uh, the FBI agent, uh, James Lewis, the suspect, and a U.S. attorney, uh, U.S. assistant attorney named Jeremy Margolis. They met like a half a dozen times and talked about different scenarios. And Lewis, who's a very gifted artist, did the infamous drawings of this is how the killer would have done it. This is how the killer would have transported the cyanide. This is how the killer would have salted the capsules. And um, they are, uh, you know, feasible, they're subjective drawings, but um Thus, you know, during these meetings, uh, they be, were able to lock Lewis in on some interesting details and timelines about what he was doing at the time um, that when he mailed the letter and things like that. And he also said a lot of different suspicious things uh, during these meetings, like, um, you know, uh, Roy Lane, for example, asked him, why do you think the killer chose extra strength Tylenol instead of regular strength Tylenol, do you think he was trying to, he or she was trying to uh, spare a child from being a victim? And, and uh, according to Roy Lane, Lewis 
began hysterically laughing and said, no, don't you get it? There's something extra in the Tylenol. So either he was enjoying this, you know, cat and mouse game and uh, with law enforcement and just saying, you know, odd things, we don't know. What was the end result of the sting operation? So jump forward to 2006, like Stacy said, um, they began this, was 18 month sting operation where they traveled to New York and Chicago and Kansas City, Missouri, research, you know, going back to James Lewis's early life to research this book. And um, secretly they're recording them the entire time. Uh, and they get enough what they consider to be evidence and presented to judges of Cook County and uh, Middlesex County. Uh, in uh, the Cambridge area where Lewis had relocated after he got out of federal prison. And they get um, they get judges to give them search warrants. So they're able to do this infamous raid that was national news in 2009, where you saw the FBI agents carrying the banker boxes out of Lewis's condo in 2009. Uh, so they later um, went to court to get uh, his DNA and fingerprints, which they had earlier um, copies of, but um, they did it again. We should state that Lewis is never, there's no physical evidence at all, uh, direct physical evidence connecting Lewis to this crime. But so then, you know, that was reported on in 2010 and that was it. You never heard anything after that. There were no charges um, and uh, just story kind of faded into the background. Prosecutors were asked um, to, to uh, see the grand jury to um, get testimony from witnesses. Uh, police believed, investigators believed they had a, uh, what they called a circum- chargeable circumstantial case. Um, but as far as we've been told by sources, uh, one witness out of five requested were was called before the grand jury and that witness um, took the fifth and, d- and didn't answer questions. So that was the thing that Stacey and I really wanted to figure out when we began our investigation. What did they get during this 18 months undercover sting operation? And uh, was it, you know, why did prosecutors not charge? Um, did they did they really have anything? Um, we had heard it was a it was a circumstantial case. And so we really wanted to find out what they had on them. Besides the uh, extortion letter, of course, and the odd things he said to Roy Lane <laughs> and Jeremy Margolis during those meetings. And you said when you first started working on this, you thought it was a cold case, but you found out things were still happening. Were those things happening involving, uh, they involved Mr. Lewis? Yes. So Stacy and I began, I believe in January, and we were able to get a uh, list of about 100 names of people who were uh, the law enforcement who was on task force one. And we just wanted to, we didn't want to assume anything we had read or heard about the case was um, accurate. We wanted to report it as if the crime happened today or yesterday. So we began calling people and one of the first people we called, I'm not kidding you, literally one of the first people we called was this long retired uh, suburban police detective who said, oh, my son, Herb Hogberg Jr. is an FBI agent and he's doing stuff on the case now. And our jaws dropped and we realized that that they're, they're still working on it. And then we began, uh, you know, making more calls, and we learned that there was a meeting between uh, 
there's been this one detective, a suburban detective named Scott Winkleman, who has just made this his passion since 2006. And he's just kept working the case. We found out that he met with top Cook County uh, state's attorney investigators in January. And then there were um, later meetings this last summer, which uh, culminated in them going out there in late September and uh, interviewing Lewis uh, for several hours, uh, we reported. So yeah, he's still the target. Uh, and he's been the target for, for decades. Um, I wanted to take some time to leave Chicago and go to New York for a second, because I'm, I'm from a town called Bronxville, New York. And so I've always been very interested in this case because the grocery shop where I grew up going to across from my like church, uh, had a, some sort of Tylenol, uh, or some sort of similar poisoning a few years after the Chicago poisoning. 1986. Yeah. Yeah. So your, your grocery store was the AMP then. Yeah, it was. It would go back and forth between AMP and Food Emporium when I was there, but it was the same same building, same structure. Same so, and that was that D Diane Ellsworth. Uh, Ellsworth. Yeah, um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that, and if you came in upon anything about that in your investigation. So yeah, so you know, when we talk about legacies of of the, of the 1982 case. You know, one of the main ones is all the safety seals that we see on bottles today on, on everything from the milk and peanut butter christy mentioned to our to our medicine and those safety seals were in place in 1986 when um uh, a woman was visiting her uh, boyfriend's parents and um in suburban new york and she uh took a tylenol before going to bed her boyfriend had gone downstairs, um, opened a new bottle and brought her a couple capsules of extra strength Tylenol. And when she didn't come up downstairs in the morning they went to the room where she was sleeping and they, and they found her dead. And it turned out that she had taken um, Tylenol filled with cyanide. And there was another bottle found um, in the area uh, filled with cyanide. And, and the question was like, okay, how did this happen? If we're supposed to have these safety seals, um, James Lewis, their prime suspect, well, he's in prison, you know, for the, so like, how does this fit into, to sort of their working theory of what happened in 1982? Um, we talked to a retired um, police detective who investigated that case. And he told us that, um, both the FBI and his department believe the bottles were, were still tampered on the shelf level, though they didn't entirely rule out the production line um, like the 1982 task force did. Um, but they believe it happened on um, the shelves and they believe that the bottles were tampered um, through the bottom, actually, and then put back in the box and, and resealed and the detective we spoke with said, you know, they would practice, you know, tampering through the bottom of the, the bottle in their police station and actually got quite good at it to the point where you really couldn't, um, you couldn't see the, the tamper, um, tampering that had been done. So to this day, um, the, the victim, Diane Ellsroth, her father was a state trooper in New York and, um, her boyfriend and her, the family were, you know, questioned 
for hours. They were considered suspects. They were eventually cleared. Um, and to this day, no one has ever been charged uh, with her death. It remains an, an open case. Um, but what it did do is Johnson Johnson got rid of the capsule form because you used to be able to like pull it apart, pour out the acetaminophen, put in whatever you want, you know, put it back in. So they, they got rid of it and went to the sort of the gel capsules that, you know, or the caplets that we know today. And um, that began, you know, another sort of tragic legacy um, of, of this, this case. And we should, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. We should note that James Lewis was in federal prison for the attempted right. extortion charge at the time. Um, right. And, uh, and much like, though, uh, the James Lewis situation, there was somebody who sort of inserted themselves into the investigation in right. the man named uh, DeWitt Gilmore, who wrote a letter claiming responsibility. But yeah. Yes. And they, they talked to him and I think they decided very quickly that um, and there were a couple of suspects in the 1982 case, just only decided very quickly could not have pulled it off, like wasn't savvy enough or organized enough to um, to actually do what he claimed and that he was um, just an opportunist. And that's what they thought about James Lewis as well in 1982 when they got the, the extortion letter demanding $1 million to stop the killing. Then they learned about his past, the murder charge that he had been um, charged with, but, you know, was dropped on the eve of trial, the um, other case uh, with the credit card fraud. And that's, at first they thought it was just a hoax, but then they realized they wanted to look deeper into his background, given uh, the history of violence that they had dug up on him. It's really a fascinating story full of twists and turns and anyone uh, interested in getting a lot more detail should uh, absolutely read your articles in the Tribune and or listen to the podcast, which also includes the story of when you guys tracked down Lewis and were actually able to talk briefly with him. It's a great podcast. Um, can I just ask you one thing Thank before you. we go? Uh, just, you know, can you talk through a bit of what, I mean, the amount of work that goes into putting together a podcast and a series of articles like this, um, can you just maybe talk about some of your process of really just really shining such a spotlight on this case? We traveled to seven states, went to Boston twice to interview Lewis or tried to interview Lewis. He talked so much in the early years of this case, but for the last you know, 15 years, it's been uh, really, you know, hasn't been photographed, uh, hadn't uh, given uh, any major interviews since 2010. So uh, we really, and he had uh, ignored our letters and attempts to reach him beforehand. So we went there twice. We interviewed more than 150 people. Uh, we filed dozens of Freedom of Information Act requests, open open records requests. Uh, it was really uh, a labor of love with the, we wanted to be um, very, very, sensitive with the with the victims families uh, they had been so traumatized and uh, sadly there were uh, because it was such a uh, 
it was such a national story. They they had dealt with some bad actors in the media um, back in the day. People just you know camping out on their lawns and things like that. So we decided the best way to approach them. Uh, we thought about how we'd want to be approached was was a handwritten letter. So we we wrote letters to each of of the victims' families rather than just showing up on their doorstep or um, or cold calling on a you know Saturday afternoon. And we accepted their their uh, refusal if, if they said, you know, I'm just, I've been down this path too many times um, and, and rather than badgering them and we went on to the best friend or the bridesmaid or the coworker or um, the neighbor, things like that. Cause we really wanted, rather than just focusing on how these, these poor souls died, we wanted to say how they lived. They were um, truly um, amazing, innocent human beings. Uh, and that the world was deprived of of some uh, wonderful people. So uh, that was challenging. We also did a lot of source work. We were able to see undercover FBI video from the sting, which, you know, that doesn't happen a lot, right? Right, Anya? <laughs> and, and reporting her. So uh, that was that was a pretty aha moment for us um, uh, of some of the things that Lewis said. And uh, so it, w- it was a real journey. Awesome. Well, this was tremendous. Um, is there anything we didn't ask you about that you think it's important to mention about this story or your process or anything that people should know going into this? It's one of those, I mean, we talk about this sometimes, these crimes that seem really complicated, but are ultimately relatively simple. And then in this case, it's 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 very much a sprawling case, it sounds like. Um, um. You know, there, there's so much talk, and Christy alluded to sort of our approach to the victims, and there is so much talk today about um, making sure you're mindful of the, of the victims when, when covering crime. And I am proud that we met the victims where they're at, but also had each victim represented by someone who loved them. Um, in the podcast and in the, the print piece and someone who remembered them. Um, and someone who still cares whether this case is, is solved or closed or, or what the status of the case is. So there, there are people out there who still want answers for deeply personal reasons. Um, you know, you mentioned it's, it's still a hot case, you know, hotter than anyone realized uh, before, you, before you started looking into it. Um, can we expect future coverage uh, from you? Absolutely. We're going to stay on the story. We know that they, um, the day we launched, the investigators went uh, to Boston and they were able to uh, convince Lewis uh, without an attorney during a taped interview to sit and talk to them at a uh, hotel near his home uh, in Cambridge. Uh, and they talked for several hours. We know that um, they uh, returned and we know that there's going to be another joint meeting soon between uh, basically the people are meeting our Cook County prosecutors, DuPage County prosecutors, and then uh, Arlington Heights police. And then there's still some FBI involvement, but really the ball is in prosecutors court. Um, you know, we've been told that they have a, a circumstantial case against James Lewis. Um, it's not going to get better with time. It's probably this is as good as it gets. So we don't know what he said during those that that most recent interview. Um, he hasn't been charged with anything, so <laughs> that tells us something, right? But we we plan to continue uh, our coverage, um, and if there's any new developments.
We want to thank Christy and Stacy for taking the time to talk with us. We highly recommend their podcast on the case, Unsealed. It goes into quite a bit more detail than we had a chance to get into here today, and it is well worth a listen. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet Discussion Group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.